So we're in Acts 24 today. We're getting towards the end. We're not too far to go, but we're going to read Acts 24. Just a reminder where we've come from. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Paul being arrested and trying to quell the crowds. And then last week, him being spoken against and having to be exported out to Caesarea under armed guard of two legions. So a massive, great uh, number of troops uh, took him to Caesarea. And so he's just arrived in Caesarea, and that's where we pick up the narrative today. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. And after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, "Uh, since we have uh, through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. I'm trying to be the lawyer, you might notice. For we have found this man uh, uh, to be a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And when we arrested him, We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along with much violence, took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. If you're reading a NIV, that bit's in the margin. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you'll be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you, make, you could take, can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges with which they've now accused me. But this I admit to you according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope of, in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my, to my nation to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out for, while I was standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I'm on trial before you today." But Felix, having a more exact knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I'll summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison.
So on arrival at Caesarea, Paul actually stands trial three times. This is the first time he stands trial before his eventual journey to Rome. And in this passage, we have the first of these trials before Felix. But who was Felix? Not the cat, I assure you. We know from Josephus that Felix's governorship of Judea was not straightforward. He even hired Sicarii. Anyone know who the Sicarii are? They're actually assassins, daggermen. They would go with daggers and kill anyone you wanted to. And Felix hired Sicarii to try and kill the high priest, Jonathan, when he fell out with him. That's what kind of governor he was. Because Jonathan had criticized Felix's administration. After Felix ceased to be the governor, the Jewish leaders actually sent an envoy to Rome to tell Nero how bad Felix had been. And he only just escaped with his life because after the intercession of his brother Pallas in Rome. So Felix was not altogether a good governor in Judea at this time. Um, and wasn't thought very well by the Jewish authorities. Even though in the, in the text you've got this lawyer buttering him up and saying how wonderful he is. That's just, just um, lawyer speak as you can imagine. There's one other thing Josephus tells us about Felix that's relevant to this passage. His wife, Drusilla, who we're told is a a Jew, was originally married to someone else. And Felix seduced her, took her away from her existing husband, and then married her. And we'll come back to that fact later, um, because it's relevant to what I want to say. So the trial in the early part of this passage is more reason than the last one in Jerusalem, which ended up as a riot. There's no shouting out or beatings or riots. And it's a much more civil affair before the governor. But notice the character of Ananias is is lurking in the background of these events. And it was he who, who, of course, last week ordered Paul to be punched in the mouth after Paul called him a whitewashed wall. This one is all a bit more civilized, as you see. But this time, however, the Jewish authorities, as I mentioned, have hired a lawyer to to present their case. And once more, we have false accusations against Paul, that he's a troublemaker, that he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, that he's desecrated the temple. And we know that this last accusation is wrong. We also know that Paul never set out to cause trouble, but was simply being out preaching the gospel. He's a bit like Paddington Bear. He didn't go looking for the trouble. The trouble came looking for him. As for being a ringleader of the Christians, rather, rather he was simply operated as an apostle outside of Jerusalem and traveling around. And he'd done li- little to receive that accolade in the city itself. And so in his defense, Paul states something of his journey, his return to Jerusalem, his desire only to worship God, the God of our ancestors, in line with the law and the prophets. And that he, like his accusers, believes in the hope of the resurrection. And so Paul bats back all of the accusations that come against him. And it seems that Paul's words are taken on board um, by Felix, who is described as being well acquainted with the way. In other words, well understanding of what Christians were doing and what they believed. And so Felix defers the judgment um, until he can hear the testimony of Lysias, the garrison commander from Jerusalem. But Paul is kept under arrest with some freedom. And then in the final part of the narrative, we see the contradiction of Felix's character. On the one hand, he wants to listen to Paul, 
But on the other, he wants Paul to bribe him to let him go, which Paul refuses to do. However, Paul is given the chance to present the gospel to Felix, and Paul grabs it with both hands. Uh, And this message, when Paul gives him the gospel, Felix becomes frightened, we're told. Felix gets scared. The gospel makes Felix afraid. We'll come back to that in a moment. But it's because Paul speaks of righteousness, self-control, and judgment. And righteousness and self-control are the very things that Felix has lacked in seducing Drusilla. And therefore, being presented with the potential for judgment because of his actions brings Felix face-to-face with the consequence of those actions. And we'll pick up on that in a moment. And the narrative ends with Felix leaving prison, Paul in prison, please the Jewish authorities, probably because he wanted to try and stop that bad report getting back to, to Nero. But the one thing I want to focus on in this passage is the message of the gospel. The gospel will always challenge unbelievers. The gospel, when heard clearly, will always be a challenge to those who don't want to hear it or who do want to hear it, but are ch- will be challenged by it. I just want to pick up what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. You'll forgive me reading a second passage, but I just want to, to give the context of what Paul's saying in his preaching. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, uh, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know, come to know God, God has, was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's you and me, brothers and sisters. He's chosen us to fool, to, 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 to uh, shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world... And the despised God has chosen the things that that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may may boast before God. But by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And Paul is contrasting there, just trying to persuade people using wise words and clever philosophy, compared with just knowing Jesus, him crucified, and the power of the spirit, working through his words. Have you ever wondered why there's so much resistance to the gospel? Have you ever wondered why 
when you've shared with friends that what you believe, they dismiss it or laugh at you. It's not easy to share what we believe because it's a challenge to those who hear us. The first thing it tells them is that they will ultimately be accountable for the way they've lived. That's what Paul said to Felix. Paul never held back from telling people this. There is one appointment that we must all keep, and that is before the judgment seat of Christ, whether we are believers or unbelievers. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever on that day is that we will be able to point and say, Jesus has covered it all. And God will declare that we're not guilty because he's already been judged on our behalf. The unbeliever has chosen to stand before God on that day on the basis of their own righteousness. And they will be found wanting because they cannot stand before God on the basis of our own righteousness. In modern society, we know all about rights and very little about responsibilities. People want to live their lives exactly as they choose without any sense of being accountable. As long as they're not hurting anyone else, they can live it as they like. Isn't life just about being happy anyway? So as long as I'm doing what makes me happy, that's all that matters, isn't it? Unfortunately, that's a cop-out. We may not directly hurt anybody, but as long as we allow injustice to endure in a fallen world, we're guilty along with everyone else. As long as we just pursue our own ends, we're as selfish as the next person. And it doesn't matter how good or how bad we are, God will hold all of us accountable for our actions or our inactions. And the plea of the believer on that day will be, an, will be an appeal to the blood of Jesus still fresh upon the mercy seat as the only cure for sin. The second things it tells, the thing it tells us is that, that there is a better way to live that, doesn't mean, uh, that does mean good choices about our behavior. Paul, in addressing Felix, talked about self-control. And this is, of course, part of the fruit of the Spirit. And as we walk as Christians, there are choices to be made about the way we live. We do have the power of the Holy Spirit working within us to help us make those choices so that as we speak and act more like Jesus. However, those choices are not always easy. And if you're in think like me, which I hope you're not, <laughs> you will usually have one or two things that you're working on at any point in time, things that you know that God has spoken to you about that you've got to improve on. Am I the only one? Are you all perfect this morning? Oh, I'm, I will. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for the encouragement there, Lee. It may be a way of speaking or thinking or acting that you know don't line up with, with Christ. The result is that from time to time we fail. But that too is part of the process. Because as we work on such things intentionally, eventually we come to overcome them. And this is not about earning anything from God or just trying to please him. It's a desire out of my love for him to be more like Jesus in everything. How will the world know what Jesus is like unless they see Jesus in us? And that's why we're on this path, to become like him in all things. And also why we should seek to model Jesus in the world. The third thing is that the gospel is foolishness to the unbeliever. And Paul made this clear in this 1 Corinthians passage. What do we mean by this? Well, the gospel is so far outside of the daily consciousness of everybody that they can't, just can't understand it without some revelation. The first thing we have to help people understand, firstly, is that God is real. Then that God came as a man in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And after that, we need to help them to grasp the meaning of sacrifice and how Jesus, in becoming a sacrifice, dealt with our sin. And even that's even if they know what sin is. And next, there's the whole, there is life beyond that, uh, the one that starts now and continues beyond the grave. And people in the world just never think about this kind of stuff. And so it's all completely alien to them. It's not surprising that, 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 that the, the gospel within our culture is a challenge to get across. But how did Jesus do it? He touched people at their point of need. In order to come to an understanding of the cross, people need to recognize their need of a savior. That, that may arise out of a physical need, an emotional need, a spiritual need. And when people recognize such a need in themselves, they tend to be more open to hear the good news. In centuries gone by, when there was a higher degree of biblical literacy, people were familiar with many of these concepts. But in the completely uh, biblically illiterate society we find ourselves in, this task is much greater. Taking again the example of, the Paul, of Paul, to the Jews he began with the Jewish scriptures and took them on a journey to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. With the Greeks, he began at the point of the concept of an unknown God and spoke into the sphere of their worship of anything and everything. For us, we have to find ways of connecting the gospel to the realities of a material world that is disconnected from the spiritual or which has rejected the Christian message along with the institution of the church. And so our message needs to speak into the real issues of real people who live real lives. If it doesn't, it's just so many alien concepts that people can't understand and can't connect to. It's foolishness to both Jews and Greeks. It's foolishness to modern materialistic selfish humanity. But Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 2 to remind us that the wisdom of God is different from human wisdom. And he reminds the Corinthians that when he came to them, he didn't come with wise and persuasive words. His decision was to preach this one message, Christ and him crucified. In other words, at the center of Paul's message was the cross. And it must be at the center of our message too. But Paul adds something else in chapter 2 verse 4. That this message wasn't just in words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Paul with the brilliance of his mind, his eloquence, didn't rely on those things alone to make known the gospel. He relied on the Holy Spirit confirming the word with acts of power. What kind of acts of power do we think he's talking about? I think there's a whole list of things we could mention. Healings, miracles, prophecy. All of these things should, should be those things that open up the gospel, open up people's ears to hear the gospel, open up their hearts to respond to the gospel. And then also the power of conviction that comes when the Holy Spirit is present. In the Hebridean revival in 1949, when the Spirit broke out, People on that island were coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their own homes. They weren't listening to preachers. They weren't even seeing anything. But the power of God was so present and so awesome that people broke down in their homes. They broke down on the streets. There was one incident of people coming to a police station because they didn't know where else to go and saying, can you find someone to pray for me? There were people in dance halls, young people who were breaking down in the middle of their disco, as it were, and just crying out for the mercy of God to come. When God's presence is there by the power of the Holy Spirit, people get challenged, people get changed. 
And that revival was preluded by serious and persistent prayer on the part of a small group of people and by a couple of older, infirm ladies in their homes. And God responds to the prayer of his people. And the point that I'm making is that if the preaching of gospel is to be successful, it needs two things. It needs the prayers of God's people and it needs the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not a matter of a few of us just putting on a rediscovery course or a life after life evening and hoping a few will respond to the gospel message. Good and important those those things are. The question we must all ask ourselves is how much do we want people to come to faith? Do we want it enough to commit ourselves to prayer and to seek in the power of God to be poured out amongst us? Currently we in the church we have a number of opportunities to pray. We have a weekly prayer meeting in the offices. On a Sunday evening, we have the monthly prayer and worship gathering on Tuesday evening. We also can pray in home groups. And I'd like to suggest that on the agenda of every one of those prayer meetings should be this idea of this, 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 this uh, imperative of seeking God to pour out his spirit upon us. So that the preaching of the word in all our gatherings can be by the spirit's power whether that means on a Sunday morning, on our home group nights, or on any other occasions, or in our workplaces. That when we have the opportunity to share, it's not just um, an embarrassed silence that we try and spit out a few words, but that we're drawing upon the power of the Holy Spirit, and perhaps releasing prophetic words into people's lives, and praying that God's God, you know, offering to pray for people, that this power of God might be poured out in their lives. We need the same anointing of the Holy Spirit wherever we go. And it's there that, that we are the presence of Christ, as we said earlier. How will the world know unless they see Jesus in us? When the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, he wasn't given to give us goose bumps or a, a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. He was given for witness. You shall receive the Holy Spirit and you shall be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. In other words, the Holy Spirit was given so that we could take the good news of Jesus Christ into every place he sends us. The Holy Spirit is not just for Sunday mornings, but for every day of the week, in every situation. He's given to give you words to say to your neighbors and colleagues in season and out of season. He's given to help you pray for people when there is an opportunity. He's given to help you explain the gospel to those who are willing to hear. He's given to bring conviction to the hearts of those who are willing to listen. He's here to help us be like Jesus in every circumstance and to make him known. As a people, we will stand or fall by how much we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. Our gatherings on a Sunday morning and during the week are important because they're a vehicle for worship and discipleship. However, they should be the springboard for us taking the work to the world, the good news of Jesus Christ. And like Paul, I would speak nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And like Paul, I would like to do so with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. How about you? Now, I know a few weeks ago, Ron gave the opportunity for people who wanted more of the Spirit to stand. I'm not going to repeat that. But I just want to encourage us to pray that the, the power of God is poured out amongst us to a greater measure. That we might be more ably equipped to do 
the work that God has given us to do, to be witnesses in our, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, wherever he takes us, and that we might see people responding to the good news of Jesus Christ and coming to know him as Savior and Lord. Amen.